So today I'll be uh, going over some of the reasons why we come to practice meditation based on the four foundations of mindfulness. I've gone over this before, but today I'm going to go over it again for the benefit of the the people who have come and just recently begun. I went over it last course, which was over a month ago. And it was in response to the question, why do we meditate? And this is a very important question, especially important in the practice of vipassana meditation because it's often not evidently clear uh, why we're coming to practice. Many people are actually turned off from the practice of vipassana meditation because it's not something which brings immediate states of pleasure uh, or it's not something that only brings states of pleasure and peace and happiness. And this is important to understand. It's, it's obviously necessary that if we're practicing vipassana that this be the case because vipassana is for the purpose of understanding understanding the things both inside of us and in the world around us as being impermanent, as being unsatisfying, as being uncontrollable. And so if when we practice meditation everything seems fine, there's a, everything seems great, the things we experience seem wonderful, seem to be very pleasing and uh, uh, satisfying, then it's clear that we, we are not seeing things as they really are. Uh, it's clear that we are seeing things through our our own misconceptions. We're seeing things in a way that is going to create craving, is going to create attachment, and as a result is going to create suffering. Because the truth about these things is they are not permanent. Uh, because they are not permanent, they can't possibly satisfy us. And they're not something which we can control to be anything else, to be permanent or satisfying, to be the way we want them to be. So when we, when we thus see things as impermanent, as unsatisfying, as uncontrollable, it's not a very pleasant thing. And so the question is, why are we doing this? It's obviously something that's very hard work. Meditation is something that is very hard work. The word in Pali is kamatana. Kamatana means, uh, kama means work. You know, we translate it as action, but in an everyday usage, and here it means work. Tana means uh, a place or a uh, specific location. And in this sense, it means a uh, a, a, the object, we have a specific object that we're working on and this is our kamatana or we have an objective which we're working on or, or we're working in a very specific way uh, for instance the words pati 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 uh, means to reach the, the, the last part means to reach but the prefix pati means uh, specifically or especially uh, so it's working specifically to reach a certain goal uh, and it's something which is very difficult it, it is work uh, it's hard work and so it sometimes is very difficult for meditators to 
uh, find reason or find uh, encouragement in the in their practice at least in the very beginning I mean after a few days it really becomes apparent that this is some necessary work that there's a lot of things inside that we need to clear up clean up and do away with but in the beginning before we've realized any of this it can be very discouraging um, because we don't feel immediately peaceful we don't feel immediately calm and we have to deal with some fairly unpleasant mind states which we've been keeping inside for a long time which we've been running away from for a long time so the Lord Buddha right away when he's taught mindfulness meditation he gave encouragement he said that there are five good reasons for practicing meditation and the way he put it he said this is the only way to realize these five goals so anybody who wants to reach these five goals in any other way is, is, is off track or is not going to be uh, not going to be happy it's not going to uh, be successful. And these five goals are one, for, our, for purification, the purification of our minds, the purification of, of the beings. And number two, for overcoming sorrow, lamentation, despair, depression and sadness and all of these mental sicknesses, uh, the neuroses and the um, mental diseases which nowadays we take pills for instead. Number three, for doing away, for destroying, they say, for literally destroying suffering, uh, for not having more, any more physical suffering or or mental suffering. And number four, for for attaining the right path, for living our life in the right way. And number five, for attaining freedom, which we call nirvana or nibbana. Uh, for being free, for becoming free. So these five goals, the Lord Buddha said, uh, this is this is this is what happens when you practice mindfulness. Or this is what we're looking for, what we're hoping to attain. This is why we're practicing, and this is encouragement for us to continue practicing. So, uh, considering that encouragement is one of the most important things that a teacher has to give to his students. Today, I was going to go over these. And give some examples of how they, uh, where they have been, been realized in the past or in, in even in the present time. So the first one for purification of one's being, for purification of all beings. If anybody wants to become pure, they have to practice mindfulness. And this is because um, the fa the impurity which we have in our mind is based on misunderstanding or ignorance, based on simply not knowing that these things are uh, unwholesome, are unskillful, are unuseful. And so until we look at them and pay attention and come to understand them, we can never hope to be free from them. And we can see this in the way we try to run away and chase away these, these mind states. We run away from them or we try to chase them away with various measures. And generally, we repress our negative emotions. So if we're an angry person, we try to repress our anger. If we're a greedy person, lustful person, we try to repress our lust and our greed. And as a result, we never learn to understand these things. We never understand our addictions. We never come to really see these things for what they are. When we see something that's attractive, we try to repress the, the attraction for it. And as a result, it, it builds up and builds up and eventually it, it explodes 
exposed right in our face and we have no choice but to follow after it. It's too strong. And we have no clue about whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. We're just lost in our desires. Anger is the same. We can repress it for a certain time, but eventually it finds a way to leak out. Unless we're very quick, we cannot repress it for, for all times. Eventually we have to uh, let loose. But when we're mindful, when we practice simply being aware of these things, even unwholesome things, people misunderstand sometimes. They're confused as to why we should allow these things to come up in the first place. And the point is we can't stop them from coming up. We can only pretend that they didn't arise and, and force them down with concentration. But they've already arisen. And there's no getting beyond that. Uh, whether we repress them or whether we just observe them. They've already arisen. So when we're angry, we repress it and we say that's better because then there's no anger. But it actually, it was already there. And we're not, we're not able to do away with it or erase that by simply repressing it. When we're mindful, we're not trying to make these things come up because they've already come up uh, already. They've already arisen. They've already come up on their own. All we're doing is creating a, a wholesome thought in place of the unwholesome thought. We're creating understanding where there was misunderstanding. So when we're angry, when we say to ourselves, angry, angry, it's not like we're encouraging it or continuing it. It's already there. We're just trying to come to understand the state of anger. And when we say to ourselves, angry, angry, we can see very clearly how unpleasant, how unwholesome this is, how unbeneficial to us and to other people it is. We see clearly what a terrible thing anger is. And this is necessary. We have to really seek. We can't just pretend that we know anger is a bad thing. It doesn't work that way. That we'll never be free from anger if we just pretend or, or intellectualize or uh, give specific reasons as to why anger is, is not a good thing. Uh, anger, and anger, in fact, is an easier one. Anger is, is much easier to see uh, the, negative, the negative aspects of anger. It gets even worse when it comes to greed, because greed is something which is very difficult. The Lord Buddha said it's very, very rare, rare to, to be blamed. Uh, greed is something which most people don't blame. They don't find blameworthy. It's very hard for us to see the problems with greed, unless we're very careful to watch the greed. And so the, the Lord Buddha, even when greed arose, he had to say to ourselves, liking, liking, or wanting, wanting, to be simply aware that greed has arisen in the mind. And it's not that we're, we're continuing the greed, it's that we're learning about it, we're coming to understand it. We're not judging it yet. We're not going to judge it without wisdom. Because once you watch it and you understand clearly things like greed and anger, you'll never be greedy or angry again. You don't have, there's no need to judge them. Once you see them clearly, you see, you see that they are not uh, beneficial and you don't give rise to them anymore. And this has to do with what the Lord Buddha said, uh, systematic attention. There's, um, there's a sutta in the Ankuttara Nikaya, the Tika Nipata, the Book of Threes, where the Lord Buddha says there are these three uh, mind states or conditions uh, and one of them is, uh, and then they're, they're greed, anger, and delusion. These are the three kilesa, the three defilements. And the Lord Buddha asks the question, well, what is the, 
cause for greed to, that has not arisen? What is the cause for it to arise? And what is the cause that anger that has not arisen? What is the cause for it to arise? Or greed that has arisen already? What is the cause for it to, to continue to grow? And what is the cause for anger to continue to grow? And what about delusion? What is the cause for unarisen delusion to arise? And delusion which has arisen, what is the cause for it to grow, to continue? And it's, it's very useful for meditators to understand the Buddha's answer. It's something that if you just read, if you haven't practiced meditation, it's really difficult somehow to, to get your mind around it and understand how this really works. But when you're a meditator, this makes perfect sense. If you've been doing meditation, you can see that the Lord Buddha's answer is very important. He said, the cause for greed is the sign of be the beautiful. Sobhana, the characteristic of, or nimitta, the characteristic of beauty and unsystematic attention. When one doesn't give systematic attention to the sign of the beautiful, meaning seeing something or hearing something or something that has arisen, seeing it as being beautiful. For instance, we see something that is very attractive. Well, this is not in and of itself a, 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 a dangerous thing, but or it's not in, in and of itself unwholesome, but when we don't give systematic attention to that, when we don't look it over, suppose we see something attractive and we, we, be, we, well, suppose we say to ourselves, seeing, 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 we come to see that, that the attraction is simply a, a thought which has arisen in our mind. The thought, the sankhara, the judgment that this is something beautiful. And we can see that it's actually a, um, something which is not intrinsic in the object. It's an addition to the reality. It's nothing to do with the reality of the object. And when we don't give, us, give systematic attention, when we're not systematically uh, reminding ourselves, using mindfulness to remind ourselves of the reality of it, then it's very easy for it to give rise to, to greed. And this is what the Lord would say, when greed has already arisen, when we don't look at this d desire, this attraction to the object and see that the, um, the attraction is, has nothing to do with the object at all, it's a, um, it's a judgment on our part which is not, not based in any intrinsic value of the object. So when we say to ourselves, liking, liking, or wanting, wanting, the systematic attention is what gets rid of the liking. And what is it that gives rise to, to anger is the opposite, the, the um, ugly or the unbeautiful. When something arises and it's unattractive to, to us, it's something that is hate that we, we don't like, that is, is repulsive. This is the cause for unarisen anger to arise when, we're, when we don't give systematic attention to this, this uh, sign, you know, when something ugly arises or un desirable or something that someone that we know who is who we don't like who we have problems with and not giving systematic attention to the the object you know, when we see someone say seeing seeing when we hear a, a bad a loud sound that's uh, disturbing us and we don't say hearing hearing when we're not systematically reminding ourselves of the nature of the object then it gives rise to anger and what is it that gives rise to delusion is the unsystematic attention. So the, the important point here is that when we're not mindful, it doesn't matter whether we like something or don't like something. 
This is very important as well. Some people think that as long as they're neutral, as long as they don't like or dislike anything, then they're, they're going to become enlightened, or maybe they are enlightened already. But if that were the case, then you could see that, that, that cows or buffaloes would be all enlightened by this time. Because cows and buffaloes, they're, they're more or less equanimous towards everything. You know, you don't often see cows get really angry or really greedy. They're just sort of uh, stupid all the time. And this is because of their high level of delusion. Animals in general have a lot of equanimity. Um, but this is, this is due to um, their unsystematic attention. Their minds are, are foggy, are cloudy. They can't see things clearly. An object arises and they can get angry at most for a very brief time because they're not able to keep anything in their mind. They're not able to give systematic attention. So the mind is full of cloudiness and delusion and ignorance. Now at the time when we're mindful, we're able to do away with all of these things. And our mind becomes pure. These three things are really all that, that we have that's making our mind impure. And they're impure because these things are a cause for all sorts of unwholesome, unpleasant uh, states of body, bodily actions, speech, or the results of such actions, or the results even of our thoughts. When we get angry, we're already suffering. When we want something and we don't get it, we're already suffering. Furthermore, it's a cause for us to do bad things, to say bad things. These are very dangerous uh, mind states, very dangerous and un unpleasant, unwholesome things to carry around with us. So the first reason why we're practicing is really the most important. Uh, it is sometimes not evident to an ordinary person why this is so important. Uh, I think there are many people who don't realize this is such a great benefit. They don't see that having a pure mind is such a great thing. Some people even think that greed is okay and anger is okay. They just All they want is happiness and peace. And they don't realize that these cannot be gotten with an impure mind. As long as we have dirt, as long as we have stains, as long as we have unwholesomeness in our mind, we'll never really be peaceful and happy. So as a result, we, as a result of not seeing this, we don't, we don't understand the importance of meditation. Now I think most of the people who come to practice meditation do begin to see this, see the importance of this. And if you don't, I'd encourage you to review this in your mind uh, when you're practicing meditation to pay attention to your likes and dislikes and try to see how they are creating uh, suffering for you and try to see the connection between kilesa, the defilements of the mind, and the suffering which arises as a result. So this is the first benefit. It's a very important benefit. At the time when we practice, just saying liking, liking, or even seeing, seeing. It cuts off the defilements momentarily. And of course, when we practice on and on, and as our insight uh, develops, we're able to do away with these defilements almost completely, so that they arise very infrequently, if at all. And once we get to the point where our insight is mature, our minds are so pure that we're able to see things very, very clearly, and we're able to see things so clearly that the mind lets go, and the mind breaks off, and this is the point where the realization of freedom and so on. So actually, all of the benefits which we're looking for, they're all, they all can be condensed, according to the commentaries even, all of the benefits can be condensed into this one benefit. Really, the only reason why we're practicing is to, to purify our minds.
But as I said, because this is often not the first reason that comes to our mind, or because we don't realize the benefits of, of purifying the mind, we have to include many other benefits, which actually come right along with the purification of the mind. For instance, the second one, which is the um, overcoming of sorrow, lamentation, despair, uh, and all the words which we use nowadays, depression, worry, stress, uh, fear, paranoia, uh, things like insomnia, um, things like obsession, anorexia, bulimia, all of these uh, sicknesses which we, we try and try to find cures for, it's often through pills or through uh, psychotherapy or so on. But it's interesting how after all of our work and all of our study, uh, there's there's a very large movement in modern psychology back to this ancient technique of mindfulness, back to the Buddha's teaching, and they're really accepting it apparently in mainstream uh, therapies, uh, in mainstream psychology. They're accepting it because it works. And after all of these, giving people pills and giving people you know, these hypnosis and so on and so on, they find that really actually the best thing that works is this ancient technique of, of the Lord Buddha's of, of being mindful, which is now spread around the world and is beginning to be accepted in mainstream uh, psychotherapy, mainstream uh, psycho psych psychology. <coughs> and this, is, this, this benefit is very, I mean, this is, this is an obvious one that many people are really keen to uh, realize people who have problems with depression they're very keen to do away with these things and I always say that these things are actually very easy to do away with um, they're very easy to to at least begin to get on a different track to at least see the light at the end of the tunnel whereas before we we maybe thought there was no way out or, or we couldn't see any any way except from sometimes even killing ourselves yeah, we feel caught up in a cycle of, of meaninglessness. When we practice meditation, we come to see that we don't need to try to escape our situation. We see that actually all we've been doing is making more of a situation than it actually uh, was. So we're depressed about what? We're depressed because life has no meaning. We're depressed because we don't have any um, future or, or so on. Well, Buddhism teaches us to, that that's okay. It's okay not to have a future. It's okay not to uh, see any meaning in life. It's okay to uh, not have a way out. In fact, the way out in the end is the way back in. Instead of running away from ourselves, it's coming back to understand and become comfortable. Because in the end, all of these things which we're missing or lacking or striving for or hoping to attain... In the end, none of them can be uh, a real home for us, a real refuge for us. And in fact, in the end, the, it's what we're running away from that's going to be our refuge. And we don't realize that we have this wonderful thing inside, which is you know, our being. You know, we could say our self, although in Buddhism we, we're careful about the word self. It's, it's very important to understand that really our self is our refuge, and the meaning is inside. We're running away from ourselves all the time. You know, we're running away from our emotions. We're running away from our thoughts. We're running away from our failures. 
instead of becoming comfortable with ourselves and coming to understand and to train uh, and to purify ourselves. We're looking for happiness outside of ourselves. And actually there's something inside that if we were to just do some house cleaning, um, we could be very perfectly satisfied with what we have. And so Buddhism helps us, the, the meditation practice helps us to see this. Uh, when we focus, this is why we're doing so much focusing on ourselves. Our meditation is a very mundane sort of meditation. And this is another reason why many people don't like it. Because the last thing they want to look at is themselves. They're looking for a way out, a magic pill. Like, you know, this movie, The Matrix. You know, if anyone told them that, you know, people like the idea of The Matrix because, oh, there's some, something else, something, a way out. Well, and people have said Matrix is a very Buddhist movie, and I think, well, really, it's not. In, in Buddhism, we're, we're, we're saying, you know, this is reality. Just come to understand it, and, and that'll be your way out. The way out is the way in. In the end, there is no way out. Once you go in, 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 everything disappears. All of your problems, all of your, your stresses, all of your suffering, it's just gone. But Nibbana is not some faraway place, it's inside of you. Freedom is inside. Freedom is here, is now. And the closer you get to here and now, the less stress and suffering that you have. And so all of these mental sicknesses are, are uh, very easy to overcome in the practice of Buddhist meditation. They are simply making more of things than they are and trying to attain things which are not important, trying to hold on to things which are not essential which are not stable, which are not a source for real and true happiness and peace. And so people come to practice with depression, they come to practice with uh, anxiety, people who have insomnia, and actually they find that very quickly they're able to do away with these things. In the Buddhist time there was a very good example of uh, Patachara, this woman who um, lost her husband she got married to a servant and her parents wouldn't accept it so she ran away and lived in the forest and then she gave birth to us or she got pregnant and she was going to go back to her parents home to give birth and her husband wouldn't let her because her husband was afraid of the consequences and so she started walking home on her own and her husband caught up to her and brought her back uh, but he caught up with her just in time for her to give birth and when he caught up with her on the way home or, or during the time they were in the forest, she gave birth to a son. And so she came back with him because she'd already given birth. And then she got pregnant again a couple of years later. And again, her husband protested, but it was the custom of her, of, uh, her family to go back to the family's home to give birth. So she made the travel on her own. And again, her husband chased after her and caught up with her. But this time there was a big storm and her husband ended up looking, wandered off looking for firewood and stepped on a snake and got killed and died of, of a snake poisoning. So Padachara, she continued on her own and she made her way to this river and she, she was of course very upset by her husband's death but she was able to continue on. She came to this river and she put, she put the older son, the son who could walk uh, down and the newborn baby who had just, who she had given birth to, she gave birth to him on the way, uh, she carried across the river. And on the other side of the river, she put the baby down, 
and she was going back for the, the older son to carry him across. She gets halfway across and this eagle comes down and, and swoops up the newborn baby which is pink and looks like a piece of meat. And very attractive. And so she waves her arms at the eagle to chase the eagle away and the older son thinks that the, her, his mother's calling him and he jumps in the river and is carried away by the, by the current. And the younger son, of course, is carried away by the eagle. So she loses both of her sons as well. Uh, totally distraught, she continues on and gets to her village, only to find out that her whole family has died of a fire or, or of, uh, you know, of a fire that had, had carried away the whole family the night before. She's someone who had some pretty heavy, or her family had some pretty heavy karma. And so she lost her whole family in the same day. And, and I think this is common even nowadays for uh, people who come to practice meditation to be those people who have experienced great states of loss. And they realize that they're totally unprepared for this. It's something that most of us don't realize. We've never had this experience of extreme loss. And so we don't understand the... Um, we understand the difficulty involved with dealing with these extreme states of sorrow which we've built up through our attachments. And all the time that we've been attaching, we don't realize the danger of becoming attached. And so most of us live our lives attaching to so many different things and liking this and liking that and not realizing the danger until often it's too late. We're old, we're sick, we're dying or so on. But here Patatra had a wonderful opportunity, but what happened, she, she went crazy. You know, it, it overwhelmed her because, of course, she was completely unprepared for, for the loss, as most of us are, I think, of her whole family. Uh, you can see how even when we lose an, a parent or, or a family member who's old, how most of us end up crying or feeling very, feeling very sad. Here she lost both of her sons, her husband, and her whole entire family, her mother, her father, and all of her relatives. So she went crazy, and she tore off her clothes, and she wandered around wailing and moaning, not really caring about anything, until one day she walked into the, the, the monastery of Jetavana where the Lord Buddha was teaching. And the Lord Buddha was able, to, able to, to, to wake her up and give her, he gave her a message. His message was that indeed she had lost all of her family and this was a very sad thing. But what he said to her is he said that the, num the, the number of tears that she had shed, the amount of water in her, her tears that she had shed in the various lifetimes which she had lived uh, was far more than the the waters in the oceans, in all of the four oceans, of the great oceans of the world. And this is a teaching which the Lord Buddha has given on many occasions. He said even, even the blood which has flowed from our necks in the times we were killed, for all of us is more than, the, each of us is more than the waters that, in all of the four oceans. You know, the time when we were born as cows, as goats, when they sacrificed or butch butchered us, or at the time when we were murderers or thieves. It's kind of amazing how, how, <laughs> how, how many lifetimes we've had that we don't even remember. Even that is more than the number of, uh, and then the amount of water in all of the oceans. 
And here he said, the, the amount of tears that we have shed for each of us. And so we have this silly sadness. It's, it's really a, such a silly thing when you look at it in this way, you know, how every lifetime we're born and, and we forget it all and then we cry about the same stupid things as though, as though we'd never seen them before. It's because we don't remember and we've, we have such limited uh, perception of the universe, and limited memory limited understanding and so this woke her up and uh, this is an example which they always use to talk about this uh, this sort of thing that uh, no matter what what circumstances we find ourselves in no matter how upsetting they may be you know, in the end it's only a brief moment in time it's not something there's no reason for us to uh, be upset or to be so attached to uh, the things which we experience and through the practice of meditation, we can see that this is a very important benefit. It's very important um, for us in the long term, and it's a very good reason why many people dedicate their lives to meditation. Because we see that we see that life is simply a, is only a brief moment in time, and we come to see that there's actually a lot more to the universe than uh, we actually are able to perceive. We're able to see things in terms of the mind. We're able to shed this belief in the in the uh, material body as being an entity which is born sick and dies. And we come to see that it's actually the mind which is arising and, and ceasing, arising and ceasing eternally. And we see that there's no end to this. And so we're striving to do away with our attachments so that in the end we can do away with these these sorts of extreme sufferings or, or mental diseases. Stresses where we stressed over our jobs and so on. We see how meaningless and how pointless it is to be attached to these things and so we let go of them. This is another benefit of the practice of meditation. The third benefit is that we're able to do away with suffering. Even bodily suffering is we're able to do away with. And this is through the practice of the acknowledgement, when we acknowledge pain, pain, or so on. Or even simply acknowledging our stress, when we feel stressed about, uh, or when we, when we simply feel stressed because we're, stre we're stressed out, because we're not able to practice, because our practice is not going well. Um, because in general, we're stressed sort of people. We, we live stressful lives when we come to practice meditation this stress is carried on into the meditation. When we acknowledge it, it actually helps the body to relieve a lot of the bodily stress as well. And as a result, we're able to do with much, do away with much bodily suffering. Uh, but on the other hand, we have to understand that as well, much of our bodily suffering we won't be able to do away with. What we're mainly focused on here is mental suffering. So on the one hand, we can understand that yes, we will be able to do away with some of our bodily suffering. We have to understand that in the immediate sense, what we're focusing more on is the mental suffering. So all of these things I've been talking about, the mental sicknesses and mental disease, they all come, in, they all boil down to some kind of mental suffering. And this is what we're able, this kernel of suffering is what we're able to destroy, what we're able to do away with uh, very, very easily. Because all mental suffering has to do with anger, has to do with disliking. And of course we know that from from the theory that uh, 
all states of anger, all states of disliking are uh, simple proje projections which we um, add on to the ultimate reality. As we see something, there's nothing intrinsically uh, unpleasant about the object. We simply add our projection onto it that this is an unpleasant, this is an undesirable object. And so we give rise to disliking, we give rise to anger, we give rise to hate. And this is where dislike, this is where suffering arises, where mental suffering arises. When we're able to do away with all of these various mental sufferings, then of course much of our bodily suffering goes away with it. But in the end we have to, just like uh, many of the stories in the Lord Buddha's time, like this monk who uh, his legs were broken, he, he had to break his, he broke his legs because these guys wanted to kill him and it's a long story, but in, to make a long story short, they wanted to kill him, and he said, well, come back tomorrow, and they said, no, you're going to run away. And so he broke both of his legs to show them that he wasn't going to run away, and then he sat there in meditation all night, saying, pain, pain, focusing on his broken legs. And as a result of that, he became an arahant, he became enlightened, he was able to let go. So in the end, we have to, we have to understand that there is much of our bodily suffering which we can do away with, and then there is some of our bodily suffering which we have to simply bear with. And so during the meditation, it's also very important to uh, be able to acknowledge, for instance, pain, 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 or aching, aching, and, and be patient with it. And because what we're trying to do away with is our, our, uh, our judgments of the pain when we judge a pain to be unpleasant, to be undesirable. Because really the pain is simply pain, it's simply a sensation which has arisen in the body. It doesn't have to be something unpleasant. This is something which is very hard for us to understand uh, until we actually get down to practice. This is the third benefit. The fourth benefit is realizing the right path. Now in this world, I've given talks before, there are many different paths which we can follow. We can follow the path to hell, we can follow the path to heaven, we can follow the path uh, to become a human being, we can follow the path to the Brahma world, and we can follow the path to freedom. And here, of course, we're following the path to freedom. So what this means is living our life in the right way. If we want to live our life in another way, I think, suppose the danger is that many people think that all paths lead to the same goal or they don't realize that there are many different paths and not all good paths lead to the same direction, lead to the same destination. Of course, not, not, not to speak of all bad paths, many, there are many bad paths which exist. For instance, the path to hell, which is getting angry or hatred, uh, cultivating hatred the path to become a ghost, which is the cultivation of greed, the path to becoming an animal, which is the cultivation of delusion. The path to becoming human is, is, uh, is a good path, but it's not the same path as the path to freedom. We have to understand that there are many good path which, paths which exist, but there's only one path which leads to freedom. So for instance, the path excuse me, the path which leads to the human world to be born as a human is the keeping of the five precepts, keeping of simple morality, 
when we don't kill, we don't steal, we don't lie, we don't cheat, we don't take drugs or alcohol, it's very easy for us to be born again as a human being. It's the path of, of an ordinary human being. The path to heaven is the path of giving gifts, the path of keeping, for instance, eight precepts or higher morality. Uh, the path of doing exceptional, being an exceptional person, being a very truthful or honest or helpful or um, kind, uh, generous sort of person. This is the path which leads to heaven. It's a good path, but it's not specifically the path which leads to freedom. Then there's the path to the Brahma world, which is the path of tranquility meditation or transcendental meditation where instead of focusing on reality as your, as your object and working on understanding reality, you're focusing on something which is not real. You're focusing on a concept. You know, they have these uh, mantras or uh, colors or lights or various objects which we create in the mind, this whole idea of the third eye, where you see something in the third eye. Well, this is creating something in the mind. <coughs> creating some sort of vision, and then focusing on that. This is what leads a person to be born as a god, or born with God, or born in the realm of God. But this is not the same path as the path of freedom. The path of freedom is a very simple path as well, uh, but it's also a very special path. It's a very simple but a very special path. It's the practice of learning to understand ourselves, working hard to understand the reality which we're faced with not to run away, not to chase away, not to look for something outside of ourselves, but simply to come to understand our own failings and our own faults and to not hate ourselves for them, but to be able to do away with them, to rise above them, to come to accept and to understand and to realize the uh, disadvantages with these things clearly. And it's quite different from hating or repressing or pushing away these things. It's the simple understanding, understanding of both the things we're attached to and the attachment itself, understanding that the things which we attach to are not worth attaching to, understanding the attachment for being something which only causes dis uh, distress and suffering. This is the right path, and this is, this is what we call the right path. Many people don't like this idea of having one right path or everyone says their path is right. Uh, but I don't mind. I mean, okay, well, I also say that our path is right. If you don't like it, you can go find another path. If you decide another path is right, I don't mind. I don't think it's, I, I don't think they exist, but maybe someone else does. So we practice this path. We say it's the right path because it helps you to do away with all of these unwholesome, unskillful tendencies and I think there are many other paths out there which don't uh, so we say this path is the right path and this this is the right way to live one's life is the life of mindfulness of recollecting clearly the reality as it arises seeing the reality around us clearly and not making more of it than it actually is and not making more of things than they actually are this is the fourth benefit. The fifth benefit is the practice is the realization of freedom. The practice of the four foundations of mindfulness leads us to be free. And here specifically, we're talking about the realization of nirvana or nibbana. And it's really a, a 
it's, a, it's kind of a touchy subject, but it's important to understand that it's, it's something which we find inside of ourselves. It's not some state which exists outside of us or some special realm or so on. It's when everything else disappears, all that's left is nirvana. It's freedom from everything else. And it's not, it's not that we have to feel afraid that it's going to take us away from everything. Everything else just falls away, just disappears. It's kind of like the mind doesn't run, doesn't chase out, doesn't chase after things anymore. The realization of nirvana, even for just a brief moment, is this attainment of a state where the mind doesn't reach out, doesn't chase after. It's like the moment when there's no fire arising, when a flame goes out. You know, when the flame goes out even for a brief moment, like you know these, uh, if you've ever seen a, a gas fire when you blow on it and the flame goes out and you think it's out and then when you stop blowing, the flame comes back. This is like the momentary realization of nirvana. At that moment, the mind is perfectly free. There's no fire, there's no suffering, there's no uh, defilement, there's no unwholesomeness, there's no impurity in the mind. The mind is perfectly pure. And then, of course, the eventual result of this is complete freedom, where the mind is no longer attached to anything. And even though there might still be some fire of suffering where you have to live and you have to continue your life and you have to work and you have to walk and sit and go to the washroom and so on, there's no more defilement left. There's no more attachment left. So in this, in this sense, we say the fire has gone out. And when that person dies, then it's these things disappear forever. The suffering is gone forever. And there's no more fire, no more suffering. So these are some, hopefully, some encouragement for the meditators that we understand clearly what it is that we're reaching for. We're not here to simply experience states of pleasure, states of bliss. We're here to really work on ourselves and come to understand these things. Most importantly, to look at the, our likes and our dislikes and to look at those things which we like and we dislike and to pay systematic attention to them, systematically going over them again and again and again reflecting wisely, coming to understand clearly. Uh, and this is really all that, all that we're doing here. We're not trying to do anything else. We're just trying to understand ourselves clearly in, in every aspect, even just watching the foot, you know, just watching the foot move, coming to see it clearly. When we come to see things clearly in this way, it's like we're sharpening uh, a weapon. We're sharpening our mind, or it's like we're straightening our mind, like straightening an arrow. Once it's perfectly straight, uh, it's like our mind is, is crooked so it can't fit out of the exit. It can't get out because our mind is crooked. It can't fit through the hole. It can't poke a hole in, in, our, in the cage that we found ourselves in. But once we straighten the mind, our mind is able to escape. Our mind is able to, to fly away. Right now our mind is crooked and this is how they look at it in the text that we're learning to straighten our minds. Straighten our minds means to see things as they are. Because when the mind is straight, it can't grasp. When the mind is crooked, then it's when it can hold on. So when we say to ourselves, seeing, seeing, or rising, falling, we're, we're teaching ourselves to see things as they are. And to the point where everything that we hold on to, we're able to see it exactly as it is. A lot of what we're doing is simple training. Some people don't understand why we have to watch our feet. 
why we have to watch our stomach. These are things which we're not really attached to. But what we're doing is training ourselves so that when bad or good things do arise, we will be able to see them clearly without holding on to them. And this will lead to so many benefits. Our minds will become pure. We'll be able to do with all sorts of mental sickness. We'll be able to do with mental suffering, physical suffering. We'll be able to do away with uh, all sorts of unpleasantness of all kinds. We'll attain the right path. We'll, we'll be said to be living our lives in the right way. You know, we won't have any of this worry or fear that you know, we don't know whether we're on the right path or doing the right thing. We'll be so confident of ourselves that we have no questions left, no worries, no doubts left, that we're doing the right thing. And we'll be free. We won't have to chase after anything. We'll be free from this need to do, need to find, need to be, need to attain. And we'll be free from all, all sorts of suffering. Anything that arises, we'll be able to see it clearly. And it won't be able to cause suffering and stress for us. So this is... Uh, what we're training ourselves in here. So this is the Dhamma for today. I hope this is helpful for all of the meditators. Of course, the most helpful thing is to have everyone continue to meditate. Everyone should please try to put your hearts into the practice. Practice as much as you can. So now I'll give you some time. At 3 o'clock we'll start reporting. Uh, everyone now continue with mindful prostration and then walking and then sitting.